10 is the beginning of the sermon text. Uh, there's a, a crucial break in verse 20, and I had thought we would finish the chapter, but uh, in the process of finishing the sermon on Friday, I only got to verse 19, and so that's as far as we'll get. I won't try to squeeze in verses 20 through 33. I think I realized that was its own sermon. So uh, just verses 10 through 19, which I think actually round off very nicely as one text and one sermon. Oh, actually, as I look at my notes, I remember that I changed my mind on Saturday, so ignore that entire comment. We are going to go through verse 33. Yes, we are. All right. Beginning then in verse 10, uh, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall uh, let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beast of uh, the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed and in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall uh, eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you uh, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. Uh, for the fe- and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have uh, sown in the field and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, uh, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land You shall bring into uh, the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you uh, into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, uh, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off, and you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall uh, drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. 
They shall not dwell in uh, your land lest they make you sin against me for you shall serve their uh, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And let us pray together. Father, we are thankful again for this message which you gave Moses on the mountain as he approached into the darkness. And we ask you, O oh God, that it would, it would uh, appear to us, uh, and I think truly it can and it will appear to us, the ways in which this uh, teaching to Israel, the laws which govern her life in the land that was to be, uh, still have a relevance to your church. Let us see that clearly, O oh God, especially now through the preaching. Amen. Well, I apologize for that confusion. I had changed it on my bulletin, but then I looked at my sermon and remembered uh, a sermon I was just reviewing this afternoon that, no, we, we are finishing the chapter. Uh, so, what we are considering and concluding now, uh, and I, I think the title does say part three, it does, is the laws of the Commonwealth of Israel, chapters 21 through 23. And when I call it that, I am referring uh, to a quote from Kyle and Dillich, which I read in an earlier sermon, the first of these three, which says, speaking of the judgments, referred to in chapter 21, verse 1, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. And that comprises everything that's said in those three chapters. Uh, it could actually be translated, uh, as they argue, rights. These are the rights of the people. And uh, this is what Kyle and Dillich say. This was the earlier quote. The right, these refer to the rights by which the national life was formed into a civil commonwealth and the political order secured. These rights had reference, first of all, to the relation in which the individuals stood to one another, the rights one to another. That's what we've been considering for two sermon, two sermons. Uh, individual rights in society, or what is sometimes called, although I don't like the phrase at all, uh, but social justice. Uh, if you were to talk about social justice, that's what you're referring to, is the, the, uh, the horizontal relations. But what we're looking at now, as we round off the discussion in chapter 23, is the vertical dimension, the rights which the people possessed in relation to God under, under the theocracy. And what we need to see is that these, uh, under the theocracy, uh, but now we could say applying the theocracy to the modern setting, uh, this would have reference to the church. These are no less rights than those rights which are possessed under the prior heading, the, the social and societal, the horizontal. And this will bring us to the conclusion of this larger section where we have, again, Moses on the mountain and the people at the foot of the mountain. The Lord is speaking to Moses. He's telling him what to tell the people, uh, chapters 21 through 23. And then we'll see chapter 24 as an importance all its own next time. Now, we could divide this under two headings. Uh, first, there are, uh, and there was these two headings that I was debating all week, whether it would be two sermons. Uh, you have the general religious laws found in verses 14 through 19. If you're asking what about verses 10 through 13, I'll answer that question in a moment. But verses 14 through 19 are the general religious laws, mostly regarding the religious calendar. But then in verses 20 through 33, you have God making certain promises to the people, which also established their rights before him. Now, another thing that we should notice in order to understand what's being said, especially in that second section, verses 20 through 23, where the Lord is saying, I'm going to lead you into the land. You're going to triumph. You're going to conquer. It's going to be a total conquest, is that the people were about to enter the land. This is something we have to keep in mind. Now, knowing the fact that these 
people do not enter the land, we might ask the question why it is that God is giving them these instructions when in fact they stand 40 years away from entering into the land. It's actually their children that will enter the land. Well, the answer is that at the moment, they didn't. They did not stand at this moment 40 years separate from the land. They stood at this moment at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, on the way. And they were about to make their final journey into the promised land. And it's in that sense that the Lord is addressing them there. It's people who are very nearly about to enter the land. That they didn't do so is their own fault. And we'll discover in this passage why it is their own fault. But eventually everything that the Lord says here about the conquest and so forth will hold once the next generation gets there. But we can divide this passage actually under three headings. I mentioned two, but remember I said, what about verses 10 through 13? Well, the the first section concerns that. And in fact, last time I even said, does 10 through 13 go through the prior section? Or does it, is it included? Should I end it at, I've ended at verse 9, should I have gone to verse 13? Well, in some sense now I'm conceding I should have gone through verse 13, but that's all right. We we can consider this since it deals with the day's Uh, And the sabbatical year, it fits in well enough with verses 14 through 19. And so verses 10 through 13, it begins with a statement about the sabbatical year. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. The sabbatical year. It's an opportunity, I'm about to stress this very strongly, it's an opportunity for the poor. Number two, you have a restatement of the fourth commandment. And by now we've noticed that nearly all the Ten Commandments have been restated. Not all, but nearly all. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. There's two things that this has, these have in common. One is uh, the shared concept of rest, but also uh, the way in which that rest is asserted and for whom it is asserted. It is asserted as a right. And so, uh, taken together, these actually form the conclusion of the prior section, the horizontal dimension. And then beginning in verse 14, we will consider the vertical dimension, the rights which man uh, share in common in, in a uh, society. And so the relation here that is being stressed in these three verses is not that to the Lord primarily, even though you say, wait a second, the, the sabbatical year, the Sabbath, that has to do with the Lord. Well, not entirely and not the way it's stressed here. The way it is stressed has to do with uh, Sabbath rest and, 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 and the sabbatical year in the relation to the poor and to the servant and to the beast and to the stranger. And so it is their rights that are being asserted and maintained. That the poor of your people may eat, verse 11. That your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed, verse 12. Whereas again, beginning in verse 14, it's the duty towards God and the rights that we enjoy that are being stressed. And the reason that's interesting to notice here in this statement about rest is because here God is saying that it is wrong to lay a burden too severe on your servant. Let's just look at it in terms of your servant. It is your duty 
to supply them with adequate rest according to the fourth commandment and according to the concept, the true biblical concept of justice. It's your duty to allow those beneath you to be refreshed and to have and enjoy their Sabbath rest. This is an explicit aspect of the fourth commandment. Let me read that commandment to you. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. There the Lord is very clearly stressing the vertical dimension. The relationship with God is expressed in keeping the Sabbath. But if you go on, you notice the horizontal dimension is equally stressed. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so I'm saying this is an explicit aspect of the fourth commandment, the the horizontal. The fact that you are to keep the Sabbath of the Lord, but at the same time you are not to use a position of power to rob another man from keeping the Sabbath. And yet this is the part we most often miss and ignore, is it not? The horizontal dimension of the Sabbath command. If you're not giving rest to those under your care, then you are not keeping the Sabbath. That's what the Lord is saying. And what is worse, he is saying, you are failing to maintain a spirit which maintains the rights of others. Which is the whole point of this section. And what is fundamental to the whole idea of justice. It isn't just an assertion of my rights, but an assertion of the rights of others. And so justice, according to this, a definition of justice is that justice seeks the welfare of another, not only myself. And here we might see a fundamental test whether we grasp what biblical justice looks like. Does it include this concept and this practice? Am I concerned uh, that the servant is able to keep the Sabbath? Am I concerned that others might rest or am I doing certain things that are uh, robbing them their ability to do so? And so rest is a right. It is a right. It is something that belongs to man as a fundamental right of his humanity by virtue of the fact that he is man. It belongs even to the slave. Or today we could say to the waitress or the waiter at the restaurant or the clerk at the store. And why is that? It's not just because it's wrong to wear him out, though that certainly is true. It's wrong to wear out uh, these, these kinds of people, people who are at the bottom of the ladder. But the answer is more like this. It's because God is resting and man is the image of God. That's what God says in the fourth commandment. That's how we should understand it. And uh, even the least of society is a man who is made in the image of God. And so God's rest is the reason for our rest. We saw that when we read the fourth commandment. And what the Lord is saying in in essence to the Israelites, he's saying to us as well, that if you do not rest, then you're still a slave to the world. You don't understand what I'm doing. You don't understand what it means to stand in relation to me. You don't understand the goal that I have set forth of your existence, and that is to enter along with me into my Sabbath rest. You don't understand what it means to be made in the image of God and to be redeemed after that image. You're still a slave to the world. 
But worse, God is saying here, if you deny others rest, then you're like a tyrant of this world, robbing others of the refreshment of the Lord that he promised to them. If you go back uh, and read what the Lord says in chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, he says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. You sh- if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Likewise, verse 27, for, for, uh, for that is his only, uh, let's see. Verse 26, actually, if you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering, and it is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Don't oppress the widow or the poor or whoever. Uh, God is immensely interested in this. In essence, he's saying how you treat those beneath you, your servants, let us call them. The person who is under you. How easy it is, God is saying, to oppress him. And what does oppression look like in the biblical sense? Not in the modern societal sense, but in the biblical sense. Do you realize that oppression in the Bible often looks very different than what the world calls oppression? Here it means very simply robbing them of rest. That they might be refreshed and that they might enjoy their Sabbaths. Taking away the Sabbath of another so that you can take it easy. That isn't right. That's wrong. That's unjust. Let those beneath you be refreshed too. That is biblical justice, beloved, based upon the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath for yourself unto the Lord your God, but be sure that you are not hindering others from keeping the Sabbath as well. For that is their right, a right that you ought to maintain Biblical justice. Finally, as this section is rounded off, you have a general statement of warning. Verse 13, In all that I've said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. The Lord is saying, in essence, be careful to heed all of these words, everything that I have told you about my Sabbaths and all of my other commands. Do not ignore them. Recognize as he just said with respect to the poor, that God is taking stock and that he knows everything that you're doing. He sees your comings and your goings. You ought to be careful. That's what the Lord is saying. You ought to be circumspect. Be careful to do all that I've commanded. And this also functions as a natural pivot to this other section where the vertical dimension is suddenly emphasized uh, exclusively. But let me here first say about this verse that most men's religion suffer, suffers rather for want of carelessness. Men are not careful and therefore they are not godly. They do not take heed to all that God has said. Be careful in all that I've said to you. Be be circumspect. Everything. Even the least of the commands. Men lack circumspection. And as a result, the name of God falls into disrepute. False religion thrives. Men become idolaters and justice falls. Godlessness, as we'll see in the upcoming sermon, is the source of unrighteousness. When you ignore the vertical dimension, the horizontal dimension inevitably will be utterly uh, devoid of righteousness. But then as we come to the second major section in this passage, verses 14 through 19, we see these laws which are also rights of the people in relation to Yahweh. 
the Lord. And here we have times and places of religious assembly. Verses 14 through 19. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Verse 14. Verse 17. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. And these are the three feasts of Passover, harvest, and ingathering. The yearly pilgrimages or feasts where the people were called to gather unto the Lord and observe his presence. uh, Observe rather these things in his presence in his sanctuary. Now, these were seemingly duties which are quite burdensome. You have to give up what you're doing. You have to take up this uh, thrice a year pilgrimage. And to the flesh, they would appear to be burdensome, but to the spirit, these were joyous opportunities uh, to gather again, just as he states, unto the Lord in his presence and to experience uh, blessing and refreshment in his presence. Let me quote uh, Kylan Dillich uh, now on the other side. I read the quote concerning the rights of the people uh, horizontally, but here's what he says about these. These were rights conferred on the people of Israel in relation to Jehovah, privileges bestowed by Jehovah upon his covenant people. The festal rejoicing was a blessing in the midst of this life of labor, toil, and trouble. What could be better than that? You see, not a burden or toil, but a chance to escape from burden and toil. And to rejoice in the presence of the Lord. These three feasts for Israel were meant to be seen as special seasons of blessing. Again, where the people were refreshed in the presence of God. And so really it's the same idea of the sabbatical year and the Sabbath, verses 10 through 12. And it really does fit together, even if it's a different dimension that's being stressed here. And let me just say there, therefore, since we put away these special seasons, but we are left with, uh, let us say, 52 days of feasting. In the Christian calendar, oh, that we might view our Sabbaths like this. Not as a heavy burden to bear, but more like a right and a privilege that we enjoy as the people of God. A special privilege and blessing which God bestows upon the church. How God must love us and seek our welfare to give us such days and seasons of blessing and refreshment and allow us to enjoy them especially when he promises to attach his own blessing and his very presence upon such days. Here are days, beloved, to appear before him and to look for his blessing and to observe his commands. And if you understood what that means, to gather in the presence of the Lord, then you would never miss a service. Not if you could help it. But then we have special directions concerning the three feasts. You have the Passover, you have the harvest and the end gathering. The, pa- the directions with regard, I'm not going to go into any detail in describing what these feasts were, but uh, I, I do want to notice the provisions and especially to stress the importance of the Passover. Verses 15 and 18, you shall, uh, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, you shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time uh, appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, none of you shall appear before me empty. Verse 15, verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. Basically, that's just a restatement of what we read earlier in Exodus chapter 13, uh, with one notable addition, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I I want to make uh, just three comments here concerning the Passover. And the first is that, without, again, going into any sort of detail about the feast, we ought to recognize that this was the great feast. This was the great day for Israel. 
the day to remember the terms of her, her deliverance and to, in essence, reenact certain elements of her deliverance, which were two. You had the unleavened bread to symbolize her spiritual purity. And you had the sacrifice in the blood to symbolize her atonement by which she was spared and passed over. Both elements, the sacrifice and the unleavened bread, uh, um, they, they, uh, they represented both aspects. And so what we recognize, seeing the Passover as the central moment and then therefore the central feast for Israel, we see these two things as the two central features of her salvation, which she was to bear in mind, which, she, which the parents were to tell their children as we read in Exodus 13, which they were to celebrate year by year, to recognize that the relation they stood uh, to, to the Lord depended upon these two things, these two essential elements of her salvation, just as they, as I, uh, as I would add, uh, always constitute the essential elements, spiritual purity and atonement through the blood. And so in reality, the Passover prefigured what were to become the paramount features of the new covenant. The fact that God would give us a new heart and the fact that God would pardon our sins. Jeremiah 31 is recounted in Hebrews chapter 8. This, these are the pivotal aspects of our salvation. And by observing this feast, Israel was to remember and to celebrate these things. And then, uh, again, to prefigure and anticipate the fullness of salvation that the new covenant would bring. In terms of these two principal blessings. The blood and the bread. But we also notice these lesser elements, such as the fact that the sacrifice was to be complete. There was to be nothing left until the morning. And also in verse 15, something that we don't see in Exodus chapter 13, at least I don't think we do. And that is that they were not to come empty handed. They were to bring something unto the Lord. Again, seemingly a duty, but in reality a right and a blessing. They were to make their offering. Now, how do you look at the offering in worship? Is it a burden? Or is it a blessing? Well, let me read Kylan Dillich again. They do such a good job of making this point. This command, verse 15, did indeed impose a duty upon Israel, but such a duty as became the source of blessing to all who performed it. And so, uh, just to make a modern application, I think you can anticipate what I'm about to say. When you worship, you, are, you ought to bring your offering. Don't come to the Lord empty-handed. And do so not as a source of drudgery, but recognize the blessing that you are able to do this. But we ought to also notice whenever we speak of the Passover, and there's something that's said here that really uh, struck me as emphasizing this aspect. And that is the sacramental quality of this rite. Especially as the Lord was stressing the centrality of the blood and the sacrifice. Now, the blood and the sacrifice had already occurred. When the Passover occurred. I mean, the actual thing in Egypt. But what were they doing when they were reenacting this? When they were sacrificing the blood. When they were eating the bread. Doesn't that sound familiar, by the way? These are the same elements that we find at the Lord's table. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread and the blood. The same two elements. And so it isn't surprising to find the Lord's Supper as the New Testament counterpart to what is the Old Testament sacrament. And both of them conveying the same sacramental truths. In both of them, there is a reenactment of the fundamentals of our salvation. Whether in the case of Israel in the Passover or in Christianity, the new covenant of the cross. 
But what we ought to recognize that in, reenact, is that re, in, in reenacting these things, there is a sacramental quality to the reenactment that must be appreciated, which is underscored with the phrase, the blood of my sacrifice here in verse 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice. And that is matched on the new covenant where Jesus describes the wine as my blood of the New Testament or my blood of the new covenant. There is a sacramental quality through the sacraments. We are made to participate in the things they represent. The blood of the covenant by faith. You have regulations so much for the Passover. Very briefly, regulations regarding the Feast of Harvest. The first of all the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And then the feast of ingathering you shall not boil a young goat in your mother's milk. That's the sort of thing you read and you raise your eyebrows and you say, I wonder what that means. Well, let me just tell you very briefly uh, what I think it means. Although it's, in, it's interesting when you start to read the commentaries, you realize they're not even quite sure. Uh, so basically it would seem that it was okay to eat a young goat. But there was something perverse the Lord is saying in taking the milk of the mother and then killing the goat with the milk of the mother. Something especially perverse, something unnatural in that. Uh, a denial of the relationship between the mother and the child, something like that. And so the Lord is apparently forbidding something they were actually inclined to do. Those are the provisions then with regard to the three feasts. But what I want to stress about them in general is that these, again, were the rights of the people. And that the Lord's blessings attend his ordinances. The things that he commands us to do become blessings to us when we observe them. The rights of the people in their relation to God. But we shouldn't think of our rights in the American sense. Uh, and I'm not even sure we should think of our American rights in the sense we tend to think of them as. But as freedoms. As, well, this is my right, so I can do whatever I want. It's something which... Uh, which liberates me to live as I please. That isn't what the Lord is asserting here. They are rights which God's people enjoy, but as they are under God, they also function like duties at the same time. Your rights appear to be duties. And to the world and to the flesh, that's a paradox, but not to a believer. Again, God's blessings attend his ordinances. When we do what he commands, we find then we are free and that we are enjoying his blessing. And until we see how both can be true at the same time, something can be a duty and a right or a privilege. Well, then we will be like Israel in the wilderness, we'll be grumblers and we'll never delight in God's religious service and his worship. We'll always avoid it. We'll always give into the flesh rather than walk by the spirit. We'll be grumbling and ultimately we'll fall in unbelief as she did. We will look for, but never find the blessing. Duty isn't a bad word. No, not for the sons of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. That those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And the Spirit leads us in the way of obedience. And he teaches us what are the rights and the privileges, which are also at the same time the duties and the observances which God has for his people. Then the third major section, which as I said, I had considered taking as its own sermon, and in some sense, perhaps I should have, because really there is something tremendous that the Lord is saying here that I'm only going to begin to consider, except it's something that the Lord is going to keep saying over and over and over again as we go forward. And that is uh, God's promises to the people in, in guiding them into the land and enabling them to conquest 
uh, to conquer the land. And so the third major section in verses 20 through 33, something that becomes a dominant theme from here on to the end of the Pentateuch, that is to the end of Deuteronomy, is what the Lord promises to do for the people. Well, I could just very briefly, uh, using Matthew Henry, divide it under three headings. The first is the promise of guidance on their way. Verse 20. Behold, I send my angel, an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you to the place which I have prepared. Verse 23, same, uh, same promise for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and so forth. There is a promise of a comfortable settlement in the land, verses 25 and 26. So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. And there is also the promise of conquest. Verses 27 to the end. I think I'll just read verses 27 and 28. I will send my fear before you and cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you. And on and on and on the Lord goes. These three things, promise of guidance, promise of comfort, And settlement, promise of conquest, these become dominant ideas, which we will have ample time to consider. But what I especially want to notice here, in in line with everything that has been said, is that in the midst of the Lord making these promises to Israel, he equally underscores, again, the precepts. The promises and the precepts going together, or the commands upon which the promises depend And here we see the very nature of the covenant that God is establishing. That God would make much of his promised blessing depend upon their obedience. Which is precisely why this generation did not inherit the promises. Any of them. Because they didn't obey. Because they sinned and they did not believe. Hebrews chapter 3. And those four commands, again I'll just state them. One is to obey and do not provoke. Verse 21, beware of him, that is the angel, and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. We could also call these warnings. Number two, do not bow down. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. Number uh, three, to complete verse 24, you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. And number four, make no covenant with them. Verses 32 and 33, you shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Here are the terms of the covenant, the precepts and the promises standing side by side. And the, the, the precepts, again, seen uh, equally as rights and duties or obligations. Let me make this observation in closing, in line with this third point, but really uh, as summing up everything that has been said. What we notice in these verses, verses 20 through 33, is that God, we rightly see and understand, is in the fight. That's the whole point. God is in the fight. He is our champion and our defender. If it were not so, then so small a band of his people could never survive in this world against so many and so hostile a foe as we have. Israel would have been wiped out. We would have been wiped out. Christianity would have been completely eradicated by today. But God is in the fight. That's the message. That is a tremendously encouraging message. Although it isn't one I found uh, that the church is always entirely prepared to hear or to conceive of God in such a way 
realizing, as I've stressed many times, and I'll say it again, that our God is a God of war. He is a man of war. He loves the fight. He relishes in it. Although we also notice that he does not fight as we would. He does so often behind the scenes as an unseen force, sending panic and confusion and so forth. He also does so little by little, you notice him saying. Verse 30, little by little I'll drive them out from before you. That isn't what we would do. We would wipe them out all at once. So the Lord doesn't fight as we fight. Oh, but look at the results. Terror and panic and confusion. He knows how to win the day. He is a fearful foe. And let us rejoice that it is so. To realize that God, uh, such a God is in fact on our side. And we need not tremble in the presence of our enemies. No, not for a moment. But there's another side to this. And Israel's history proves this point very powerfully. Which we ignore to our own peril. And do not tell me that this is only the message of the Old Testament because this is this precise point that the New Testament makes over and over again inciting the history of Israel. Look again to the words of verse 21. He says, I'll go before you. I'll fight for you. I'll conquer your enemies. But beware of him and obey his voice. That is the angel of the Lord. Do not provoke him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. And indeed, do you notice how many warnings to the people are here? The very people that God is promising to fight for. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us what it means to stand in league with the Lord. To have Him on your side and to have Him fighting for you. Do you think that all is safe for such a people? Well, the answer is it isn't. In fact, the person in this situation finds the situation is really quite dangerous. For if God is so great and mighty, do we think that we can provoke him safely? Clearly, the Lord is saying here that we cannot. That it is an incredibly dangerous thing to think that because God is on my side, that all is well and I can live as I please. And yet, how many make this mistake? It's the very idea that's worked out so fully in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, where he clearly has this wilderness community in mind. They thought God was on their side, so all was well. And what a mistake this was. Did they not realize that God would not bless a disobedient and unbelieving people? And so he says, let me just read Hebrews chapter 10, although he makes this point over and over again in the book of Hebrews. But just listen to this. Speaking again of the wilderness community, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, and applying it to us. For if we sin willfully, willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He won't pardon you. That's what he said in verse 21. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment, a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled upon the Son, the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. The same thing was happening in Corinth. And there we find Paul stressing 
uh, or emphasizing the same the same thing or the same people. His reference is is the the wilderness community. He says in chapter uh, ten, verses eighteen through twenty two. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The same thing. Do not provoke him. And if you do, what do you think will happen? And so what we find in the New Testament is that the precise principle which is stated in verse 21, Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. That same exact principle holds even, holds, uh, even now, if not more so. The message is, in summary, that it is wonderful to have God on your side. There's nothing better. But be careful. Be careful. Paul says the same exact things. Let me quote uh, uh, one more passage to the Gentiles in Romans. Romans chapter 11. They began to be at ease. He says, you ought not to be so easy. You've forgotten who the Lord is. Romans chapter 11 Verses 18 through 20. Do not boast against the branches, that is the Jews. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be granted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural, natural branches, he may not spare you either. Do not be haughty, but fear. Do not become proud and careless. Stand ye in awe. Provoke him not who fights for you. Keep and observe his ordinances. Acknowledge him as the Lord. Trust in him. Look to him to fight. Not with the weapons of warfare of this world, but those of his own. To find that God is in the fight, fighting for his people, does not mean it is time to relax. It means rather that it is time to be circumspect. Once again, let me read the words of verse 13. In all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. And indeed, now more than ever. Amen. And let us return praise to God now by standing together and singing hymn 502.